This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. This is episode 335. And I had this great opportunity about six months ago to really be on the uh, forefront or the vanguard of uh, developing a very hot new type of therapeutics for the treatment of CNS disorders. There are really three to four NASDAQ companies that play in our space. Um, the largest one is GW Pharmaceuticals, and they trade around $3 billion. And uh, we um, are trading at $20 million, and I have no way to explain that disparity. So, um, you know, through our work with Wall Street and the investment community, the idea was to, to raise that quite a bit. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. This is Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Josh Blatcher, CFO of Therapix Biosciences. Nowhere do the communication skills of CFOs face a greater challenge than inside the biotech sector. Think about it. Biotech CFOs must be multilingual. They speak the language of finance, but also science. And for CFOs like Josh, it's about obtaining recognition for cutting-edge, high-calorie science. Here's where biotech CFOs truly ascend into the ranks of master storytellers. Master communicators. Our interview with Josh begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. So I'm just going to kick off here. Hello, we're speaking to Josh Blatcher, CFO of biotech firm Therapix. Prior to joining Therapix, Josh was the CFO of Galmed Pharmaceuticals and earlier served as Director of Business Development at Teva Innovative Ventures. Josh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So, Josh, it sounds like you, you might have gone the business development route to the uh, CFO office, but first, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what were those uh, career experiences that helped prepare you for a CFO role? Sure. Uh, it's rather an indirect uh, pathway that I took, but um, I'll try to do it quickly. Uh, I cut my teeth in the finance business at Lehman Brothers, where I was an analyst in the mergers and acquisitions department in the late 90s for about five years, a group that was called Financial Institutions Group. 
uh, that focused on banks and credit card companies, mortgage companies, consumer credit, etc. So it was an era of mass consolidation, and I was the lowest of the low on the totem pole, and therefore had to learn a lot and learn it quickly. Uh, from then, from there, I went to uh, Columbia Business School, where I concentrated on finance and got my MBA in 2001. And then I spent a number of years in investment management. First, I was on the sell side at Morgan Stanley, covering the bank stocks, and later at Deutsche Asset Management, the asset management arm of Deutsche Bank, uh, where I was a sector analyst covering global financials, and our group was responsible for running about 3 to $4 billion. Uh, from then, uh, I really segued my way into healthcare and pharmaceuticals and biotech uh, by starting at Teva Innovative Ventures, as you mentioned. That is the early stage investing and licensing arm of Teva. It's basically the corporate VC arm. It was a highly transactional group, and we were uh, closing about six deals a year and evaluating probably about 75 deals a year. Um, so that was also what I would probably consider my uh, second uh, schooling, uh, where I had to come up to speed very quickly on all sorts of medical and scientific uh, topics and indications, a field that I'm not particularly uh, schooled in. Um, so that was a bit of a challenge, but I um, was uh, I managed to do that rather successfully and uh, learned about three indications in particular, one being CNS disorders, the other one being oncology, and the third being autoimmune. Um, and as you mentioned, I uh, was at Gallman Pharmaceuticals, another NASDAQ-traded company. Uh, that is developing uh, molecules for the treatment of various liver diseases. And I had this great opportunity about six months ago to really be on the uh, forefront or the vanguard of uh, developing a very hot new type of therapeutics for the treatment of CNS disorders uh, based on cannabinoids. Cannabinoids are a synthetic derivative of cannabis, which has shown to be extremely efficacious in the treatment and complete resolution of many CNS-related disorders. Uh, primarily, um, we are focused on Tourette syndrome, which is involuntary motor, motor and verbal tics. Okay, so when you land at, at, at Therapix, and this is only in the last year from what I understand, uh, you just touched on the opportunity perhaps that you saw. But uh, what was the first order of business uh, as you joined an organization in such an early stage? Well, the first order of business really was um, to establish uh, a dialogue with the investment community. The company had just gone public on NASDAQ and raised about $14 million. And until then, there had not really been a... Uh, well-established or developed relationship with the investment community, both uh, investors, institutionals, high net worth individuals, uh, registers, investment advisors, as well as sell-side analysts. So I sort of uh, pulled from my existing relationships, my previous work at GallMed, uh, as well as my um, broader network, and really helped uh, establish those relationships with the purpose of raising our visibility. Um, and the, the main thing that we wanted to do is get, recogni get recognition more broadly for our cutting-edge science, 
there are really three to four NASDAQ companies that play in our space. Um, the largest one is GW Pharmaceuticals, and they trade around $3 billion. And uh, we um, are trading at $20 million, and I have no way to explain that disparity. So, um, you know, through our work with uh, through our work with um, Wall Street and the investment community, the idea was to, to raise that quite a bit. So can you give us a sense of what, uh, as you come into this type of role, where it's really you're educating Wall Street, you're learning how to, uh, you know, tell the story, what, what, is the finance, what does your finance team consist of at this point? It's, it's probably just a handful of individuals. Yeah, we we don't need many people. Fortunately, most of uh, most of our activities are outsourced, um, and uh, also fortunately, our drugs that we're working with have already been approved by the FDA. So we do not need to go through the long and arduous and very expensive normal path of developing a, a new chemical entity. And it's a you know the the total company is about twelve people, so everybody does everything. Uh, but it, within the uh, team itself and the finance team itself, um, you have myself and then a VP finance, and then we have a director of finance and accounting as well as a bookkeeper. So what you're focused on right now is how do you explain the story and get in front of the right people to tell them you know, what distinguishes these offerings? Um, I would say there are three basic channels that I pursue. Uh, one and perhaps the most obvious is to reach out to investors in healthcare companies that are on the cutting edge of any given part of science. As I mentioned, we're focusing on CNS-related disorders. That stands for Central Nervous System-related disorders, uh, and so there, um, you know, there there is a well-defined group of institutional investors that focus on those. And uh, that is uh, tier number one that we look at. The second tier is companies that are involved in high potential micro or small cap related stocks. Um, and so that is less industry specific, more agnostic, uh, but they have an affinity towards high growth uh, stocks, small cap stocks. And um, there are various conferences and analysts that follow those as well, so we like to be there. And then the third is really what I call the affinity groups. Those would be people that don't necessarily have a financial attachment to what we're doing, but more an emotional attachment. In our case, it would be um, affiliate groups associated with Tourette syndrome, of which there are many. Uh, and so um, there are a number of Tourette's groups located uh, throughout the United States and the world, both scientific, medical, as well as the broader ecosystem, the parents of or the spouses of um, support networks. And we try to reach out there and let them know what we're doing, why it's different, and why we think it has a lot of merit. So what, what do you want to accomplish in the next 18 months, and what are the metrics that would reveal what you've accomplished? Okay, so most of this really has to do with our developments on the scientific side. We are currently running a Phase 2A study at Yale University, uh, which is evaluating the efficacy of our drug in patients with Tourette syndrome. It's an open-label study, which means it is not controlled. There's no placebo arm. Um, and it is, however, being conducted by probably the two foremost leaders 
uh, in Tourette syndrome uh, with a cross-section of a specialization in cannabinoid technology. And so um, we are uh, very proud to be affiliated with Yale and doing this study with uh, the best investigators that we could possibly hope for. And we are set to release data in January of 2018. The next trial after that will be a control trial where we're looking um, at between 20 and 40 uh, patients on the drug and another 20 to 40 patients on the placebo group. And this will be, um, this possibly could be, the upside would be if, if this allows us to go directly into regulatory or regulatory approval studies of phase three. Uh, and so, you know, the value of the Yale study is excellent, and we think because of the quality of the key opinion leaders, we'll, we'll learn a lot about the efficacy of cannabinoids and Tourette's. Um, but usually the FDA and the other regulatory agencies want to see a controlled study where it's evaluated uh, against the placebo arm, so that will be the final study. And depending on the results of those, we'll really determine how quickly we can get to market, but we're currently assuming that we'll be able to get to market with the Tourette's drug uh, by 2020 or 2021. Um, we also have a second program for uh, traumatic brain injury or concussions that is a, about a year behind the Tourette's program. And then we uh, have a few more indications that we will be announcing over the next, uh, let's call it zero to six months. So we want to stay concentrated on CNS-related disorders. We want to focus on medical diseases that we already know cannabinoids or cannabis have been effective for historically, one of which being uh, Tourette syndrome. And uh, I will tell you just uh, allegorically, um, it's, it's a well-documented fact that uh, up to half of the adult population that suffers from Tourette's syndrome self-medicates with cannabis, with marijuana, because the relief that they feel is, has been well-established uh, by marijuana and cannabis over the last 40 years, which have included clinical trials. Uh, there are all sorts of regulatory and legal and stigma-related issues with you know, simply doling out prescriptions for medical marijuana for the treatment of cannabis, or excuse, excuse me, for the treatment of uh, um, Tourette's syndrome, and so therefore we've gone the we've gone the medical route of um, having a non uh, psychoactive molecule that is effective uh, against the treatment of Tourette's syndrome. So I'm wondering, what is the generally misunderstood about this area that you're in? As you talk to other fina your financial peers from other areas, is there something that um, generally is not always understood, or something that comes to you uh, comes to mind when I ask that question? There might not be, but I yeah, no, absolutely. It's no, there, there definitely is. Um, I think, generally speaking, financial types. Uh, assume that um, uh, assume that the cost of developing a drug uh, is about a billion dollars, and the time is about ten years, and the um, and the success rate is less than five percent. Um, what's special about us, from a financial standpoint, is none of that is true, and the reason none of that is true is because we are already working with uh, regulatory approved 
um, ingredients. THC, which is the one of the main underlying active ingredients in cannabis, has been approved as a medication since the 1980s. We are adding to that for a combination therapy, a medical food, uh, which we believe through our earlier work and through some tangential work, extends the effect of the THC by a factor of 10. So whereas in the case of normal cannabis or marijuana, somebody that is suffering from Tourette's and wants to relieve their symptoms by smoking cannabis, they would have to smoke between tw 10 and 12 marijuana joints or marijuana cigarettes a day. And what we are doing is uh, putting that in the form of a pill that is regulated, that is approved by the FDA, and hopefully will last an entire day. Um, and so uh, because of this combination of using approved uh, medications and simply optimizing, uh, we are able to cut the time to development you know, by probably, I'm guessing, upwards of 75%. Uh, the development, the cost of the development would all in probably be less than $75 million versus a billion dollars. Uh, and also importantly, also importantly, the success, uh, the success rate of repurposing existing drugs is much, much higher than developing a new chemical entity. So we think on a risk-adjusted basis, you know, the DCF uh, value of this proposition is so far superior than, you know, your, your regular biotech company. We like to ask for a finance strategic moment that you might have experienced during the course of your career, and I'm sure there's been a few. Um, but this is where, uh, given your uh, lines of sight as a finance leader, you are able to see either an opportunity or a risk or something that led you to uh, point the organization in a different direction or change what you were doing in some fashion. Does anything come to mind? Yeah. Um, you know, some, something very interesting that I developed when I worked at uh, Teva uh, Pharmaceuticals is what I call a risk-adjusted discounted cash flow value of a, of a therapy, um, which is completely contrary to the way many people in the scientific and medical community think about valuation. Um, but the way it generally works at big funds, and many of these uh, funds do it right, um, but you have a group of scientists uh, that sit around the board table and make decisions on uh, the various uh, merits and superiority of molecule A over molecule B for the treatment of said disease. And sadly, they get it wrong all day long. Um, it's very, very difficult uh, for, you know, for scientists uh, to necessarily uh, make any indication of the price tag of an asset before you have uh, proof of concept in human beings, which is when you're already seven or eight years into the game and have sunk several hundred million dollars. I um, took a much more agnostic and financial approach, which is um, I used some survey data of attrition rates, the extent to which um, particular drugs succeed in clinical development for whatever indication it is, and you really have to be granular here. The success rates in oncology are very different than gastroenterology or CNS or neonatal or anything like that, so you really have to do a deep dive into that, understand the success factors, 
and then under, understand uh, the attrition rates at each step of development. Um, and so what I did is I, I rolled that concept in together uh, with uh, how much money would be required to take the drug from, you know, the starting point until the shelf and put that together in a very smart DCF. And therefore, I can really just take an agnostic approach to it, work with statistics and data rather than speculation of the validity of a particular scientific or biological target in the body. And, you know, sometimes it, it helps to be uh, less educated in the science and medicine and better educated in understanding how to evaluate uh, uh, any assets. Well, we're going to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor your finance leader peers and, and aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Um, today in particular or just in general? In general. Sure. I mean, there are a couple things about my job in general that I think are very rewarding. First of all, at the end of the day, you know, within a matter of months or a couple of years, you get to find out whether you're right or wrong. Um, you know, the stock either outperforms or underperforms. It's peer groups or whatever index you happen to be look at, and it's a very, very simple and accurate way to grade yourself. And you can learn from that, frankly. If you, you know, if you're batting above 500, you're doing great. If you're batting well below 500, you know, you need to rejigger your thought process. Um, as one of my intellectual mentors, I never met the man, but I've uh, read an awful lot about him, uh, Sanford Bernstein, um, of blessed memory, who was one of the uh, leaders in asset management in the 80s and 90s, had, had an expression uh, right or wrong, but never in doubt. Um, you go after high conviction in ideas, and if you're on the fence, stay away. If you don't have any particular edge or any ability uh, to get um, some incremental information or insight into something, it's not for you. If you think that you know you can have a definitive answer, this is a good play or this is a terrible play, th those are the ideas that you go for. What do you wish someone had told you when you first uh, came into a CFO role for the first time? What is it that you wish someone might have told you before you, you took on that role? Oh, wow. That, that's an excellent question. Um, I would say, you know, get, get ready for uh, a lot of roller coaster rides. Um, there are you know, some days or weeks that are absolutely miserable, uh, where your stock is in the gutter, where there's no reflection of reality on, on the stock price or the financial markets. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're reporting to the CEO and the chairman and the, and the shareholders. And, you know, things are out of control or out of your control. And it's very difficult um, to keep your head above water when you, you know when your your stock is sinking for no good reason, um, and so um, so on on the negative side, you got to be ready for those and just brace it, and know how to say you know this is out of my control, and tomorrow the sun is going to rise and it's going to be a new day and we'll see what has you know what the markets have in store for us tomorrow. The corollary is don't pat yourself too too nicely on the back when you do get it right because you can equally get it wrong. So humility is super important. 
when you uh, happen to get the call right, don't do a victory lap. Be humble, be modest, and uh, try to keep replicating those, uh, those results. Do you have a personal habit that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Um, well, actually, probably a few, um, but a lot of it has to do with uh, leading a healthy lifestyle outside of work. Um, I think a good combination of um, high-energy impact sports uh, on a regular basis to release, release your endorphins outside of work versus inside of work is super important. Um, I think having completely unrelated interests other than, um, other than your work is also important. You can't be all about work all of the time. So I like to have a nice mix uh, of family activities, spending individual time with my children, uh, as well as uh, my karate obsession. <laughs> I was going to ask for an example. I guess karate is your impact sport of choice, yes. Yeah, karate is my impact sport. Yeah. <laughs> How far back uh, did your interest in karate go? Where did that originate? Um, actually, it goes, back, um, it goes back quite a while. I, I first started becoming interested in martial arts when I was just a boy, and I took taekwondo for several years. And uh, most recently, over the last eight years or so, I transitioned into karate um, and started out at the bottom rung, which is uh, what they call Q9, Qtasia here in Israel, and uh, progressively um, worked my way up, um, and I'm one test before my black belt. Um, but what I, you know, what I particularly love about karate is the fact that we uh, focus on self-discipline, meditation, um, and then a, a good mix of body alignment. It's not just you know beating up people and stuff like that, but it's learning how to move your body properly, learning how to breathe properly, um, and uh, learning how to you know find your center of gravity um, and defend yourself. So. Uh, so it's not just the, the physical release of endorphins, but it's, it's more spiritual and overall helpful. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We'll have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, we're up to our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? If there was a checklist maybe, but what are, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Well, my main job at the company as a CFO um, is to make sure that the coffers or the company are deep and well-machined. So um, I need to make sure that we have the right amount 
uh, of money in the bank to fund our operations, ideally for at least two years. Um, but honestly, I would love to have the war chest to make sure that we can take our drug to the market if it happens to be the case. Uh, and that involves, you know, that just having the right amount of money isn't isn't enough. It's it's about um, making sure that your drugs are being developed efficiently, both in terms of cost and time, um, as well as there is some recognition in the investment community uh, in the event that you do have to raise additional financing. Um, we try to do it on the best possible terms for our shareholders. Uh, and so, you know, we have to get all the pieces moving together in order to, uh, to, to deliver outsized returns to our shareholders. Josh Blatcher, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.